Um, we have been, we've been going through the concept. We're starting this couple-week series on uh, what is rooted in gospel purpose. What does it mean to be rooted in gospel purpose? You remember last week we talked about, in Hebrews 2, we talked about the fact of God created man and woman to steward his creation, to bring out the maximum potential in every area of life in a way that would reflect God's intended purpose for it. So everything we did when he put us on planet Earth, he says, I want y'all to rule, have dominion, and be fruitful and multiply in such a way where everything that is developed on planet Earth would reflect the character of the living God. The issue is sin and death came in, as we saw. And so he says, the author of Hebrews in chapter 2, he says, man, like, based on these things, they were trying to think like angels had some kind of significant place. And he says, here's the thing, angels and even humans, the way humans were designed to do this, he says in the psalm, he reflects and uses Psalm 8 and says, but we haven't seen this done yet. Because we begin to realize that in order to pursue God's purpose, we couldn't do it because of sin and death properly. So everything that we do outside of what God is able to do to restore his purpose will not reflect his purpose. Does that make sense? So it doesn't matter what you look to. You could go to angels. You could go to super spiritual experiences. You could go to other people. You could go to family members and saying, I need help with this addiction. I need help with this area that I just can't overcome. I can't seem to have a healthy relationship. I can't seem to love my kids away. I can't seem to respect my coworkers. I can't seem to, to fight this fleshly urge. I just can't seem to do it. And he says the design is to get to the place when we say, outside of Jesus, we don't have what it takes to actually do what God intends humanity to do. Does that make sense? And so the gospel brings us to the place to say, yeah, I need to realize that. Now that Jesus, that's why Paul says, look, anything that is outside of Jesus will get burned up. Anything that is outside Jesus, it doesn't, it could be even seen as a good deed. But, but good deeds are different than, as we talked about a couple weeks, good works. See, good works only come when Jesus gets a hold of you because good works are consistent with true godliness. Since they're true with good godliness, that's what puts on display his character. So, he says, the only way for you to pursue God's purpose is get Jesus right. If you don't get Jesus right, you'll have maybe good deeds, maybe messy deeds, but they're not God's intended purpose. Does that make sense? So, we're seeing how the only way to pursue God's purpose is if we let, see Jesus for who he is as the one who frees us to walk in his ways. And so let's do kind of a, an operating uh, definition of purpose. All right, so, and I'll have this up the next couple weeks. Purpose would be this idea of in Christ, reflecting his character in all areas of life so that more will experience his salvation and glorify his name. Did you catch that? This is purpose. We talked about last week, purpose cannot be found in you just saying, if I do this, then I'll have purpose. If I'm this person, then I'll have this purpose. If I can get this many followers, then I'll have purpose. We have a tendency to find purpose outside. He says, no, no, no. First, you've got to find it in Jesus. Then as you walk with Jesus in the different areas that are before you, you're living in purpose. Does that make sense? It's something that Jesus gives you the grace to take care of every area of life that reflects his purpose. 
Make sense? Are y'all tracking with this? So we got to be rooted in the beauty of Jesus so that we could do this. So here's the thing. Last week we discussed that, but here's one of the things. What do you do? That's a nice picture. Pursue Christ's purpose for the good of all people. That's dope. And it's only done through Jesus. But my question, in light of as our city mourns the loss of Kobe Bryant, as our city mourns the loss of a family, of Gigi, a family, a parents that passed away and foster kids are left. As the city mourns those dynamics, as we also mourn the shootings that happen in our neighborhood every day, as we mourn these dynamics, it's very real that something God is doing, as Eden was praying, to remind us that sometimes death hits you in a way that you did not anticipate. Brokenness, disappointment hits you in ways you weren't planning on. Right, you, The despair creeps in. You could have the best moment. I'm preaching to myself on this one. You could have the best moment where you see God do something. You, go, you leave that. Something triggers from an external thing that triggers something inside of disappointment and despair gets the best of you. And all of a sudden, you can't even see the good thing that God just did. What do we do with that when you can feel like I'm on purpose, I'm, I'm pursuing Christ's purpose, and then you get sucker punched on the side and you didn't even see it coming? Life is full of that. We never would imagine that a 41-year-old man who is now getting into what we would perceive his prime to invest in the city, his life has taken. We never would have imagined that a man who's trying to invest in stuff and doing some good deeds, Nipsey Hussle, life gets taken because of stuff. And there's all the ifs and what's, all that. All I'm saying is that when this stuff hits our city, it amplifies the reality that says, my goodness, money. Fame, good insurance. We need to pursue certain economic justice issues. But here's the thing. We can run, but we cannot hide from the inevitable in a fallen world. It's going to happen. And so I think it's so interesting about what do we do when this stuff happens? When this hits the reality of it hurts, right? Like, we can be having the best day walking with Jesus. We can be doing what God wants us to do, having favor in the job, having good communication with our spouse, having good communication with friends and navigating. We can be having all that stuff, and then what happens is that something hits and it hurts. And I think the question is, when this stuff hits, can we be honest that it hurts? Can we be honest that it hurts? Does it hurt when stuff sucker punches you? When life and brokenness and sin sucker punches you? And you're like, but God, I'm following you. Should this really happen? I'm pursuing your purpose. I'm trying to steward the gospel of the grace of Jesus Christ. And you're bearing the fruit of the spirit in these different areas. But this? Really, Lord? So we're left with these questions. And it's never going to be easy. That's the thing. It doesn't matter how much you grow in sensing and walking in God's purpose. When death hits you, it doesn't make it easier. Because if it makes it easier, sometimes we minimize that sin still hurts. Sin still has the same consequences as it did when Adam and Eve did what they did. Does that make sense? So, so there's this, these kind of things in our culture. We grieve. We mourn. And then we reflect. 
What is God trying to say in the midst when we are hit with the reality of we could hit a coronavirus and we don't even know it? We can stay in the house. We could try to wash. We find out some of these germs, we're like, why are people catching this germ when it's been gone for, four, for like a week? We just don't know. It can morph and stay for a whole week. Like, we just don't know. And it could hit us at different times. So here's the thing. Whether it's a, it's a death of a loved one, whether it's a death of a dream, whether it's a death of a relationship or a loss of a relationship, whether it's a death or loss of a job, whether it's a death or loss in the midst of transition, and whether it's death through abuse or a loss through abuse, or even deep, deep, deep hopelessness, how do we deal with this? How do we make sense of this? How do we walk through this? And here's, here's something that's interesting as I'm, as I'm kind of tracking and I follow different business, local businesses in our community, and one said it like this. It's interesting to see as you are ears to one another and to the king and to the block, we need to pay attention with how are we dealing with grief as a city? Because that's key for us engaging our city with the gospel and learning discipleship in our city. Here's what one said. It said, this tweet said like this in our community, the angels are praying for us. I thought that was ironic talking about Hebrews 2 last week. Right? Angels don't have the ability to actually restore God's purpose and bring comfort like that, right? But he said that the angels are praying for us. Let's call upon the ancestors and spiritual energy to support us in this moment of grief and loss. Y'all, this is where in our community, these are ways that we're learning to grieve. Grief is needed when death abounds. So the question is, if we are not learning as a church to walk through it and watch how Jesus leads us through it, we don't really have a ministry of presence in our community. And we won't know what to do when it happens to us and when we enter in, it happens in our community. Is this making sense? All right, so let's dive in here. Here's, as we get into this text, let's go ahead and our, um, let's read this text. It's a long text today. Um, I'm going to summarize and walking through it, but I want us just to read this together. It's 44 verses. Y'all ready? We're going to read this together. And it's stand. Thank you, Anton. Way to represent. Look at Howard leading the way. Shout out to HBCUs. Um, I'm so glad Will's not here today, man. <laughs> Uh, all right, let's, so let's read this. But as you read it, pay attention to what we're talking about in the movements in the story. To the best that you can, pay attention to the movements of the story in it. Let's read one, two, three. Now man was sick, Lazarus, from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair. And it was her brother Lazarus who was sick. So the sisters sent a message to him, Lord, the one you love is sick. When Jesus heard it, he said, this sickness will not end in death, but is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Jesus loved Martha, her sister, and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Then after that, he said to the disciples, let's go to Judea again. Rabbi, the disciples told him, just now the Jews tried to stone you, and you're going there again? Aren't there 12 hours in a day? Jesus answered, If anyone walks during the day, 
he doesn't stumble because he sees the light of this world. If anyone walks during the night, he does stumble because the light is not in him. He said this, and then he told them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm on my way to wake him up. Then the disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will get well. Jesus, however, was speaking about his death, but they thought he was speaking about natural sleep. So Jesus then told them plainly, Lazarus has died. I'm glad for you that I wasn't there so that you may believe, but let's go to him. Then Thomas said to his fellow disciples, let's go so that we may die with him. When Jesus arrived, he found Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away. Many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them about their brother. As soon as Martha had heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Then Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Yet even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Your brother will rise again, Jesus told her. Martha said, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die ever. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God who has come into the world. Having said this, she went back and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. As soon as she heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Jesus had not yet come to the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. The Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw that Mary got up quickly and went out. So they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to cry there. When Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and told him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her crying and the Jews who had come with her crying, he was angry in his spirit and deeply moved. Where have they put him? He asked, Lord, they have told him, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, couldn't he who opened the blind man's eye also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, angry in himself again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and the stone was lying against it. Remove the stone, Jesus said. Martha, the dead man's sister, told him, Lord, he already stinks. It's been four days. Jesus said to her, didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you heard me. I know that you always hear me, but because of the crowd standing here, I said this so that they may believe you sent me. After he said this, he shouted with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out bound hand and foot with linen strips and with his face wrapped in a cloth. Jesus said to them, loose him and let him go. Here, as we look into this text here, one of the things in the context to understand this text as we go in, we got to look at just the part in chapter 10 before. So look at, we're going to be kind of combing through this. So if you've got your phones, open them up to the text, throw your Bibles open. We're just going to be looking through this dynamic. Um, one of the things that's interesting to understand this before chapter 11 and before we dive into this, you've got to understand that Jesus was doing things that the religious leaders didn't like, all right? He was talking in a way, specifically in this context, he was talking in a way that to them they heard and they accurately heard, but they couldn't respond properly because they didn't quite get it. Yet the fact that they say, men, we're going to stone you 
because you're blaspheming by saying, making yourself equal with God. So they're hearing him properly. When they hear, I and the Father and one, we try to make it all fancy because of these cults and everything, try to talk about, well, maybe they're on one purpose. No, no, no. The way Jesus was talking, he is actually saying he is God, right? That you have the triune God. And so they, they hear and they're like, no way, like this doesn't make sense. And they're like, we're going to stone you. This is happening around the Judean area. So here's what Jesus, Jesus, they, uh, they evade that and they, they roll out, him and his disciples. They, they're not stoned, but they go to where John the Baptist was baptizing. And it's interesting, that location where John the Baptist was baptizing, it brings the reader back to remember as they're writing of what John had actually said about Jesus. And it's later on in this time when he goes to this location that people then see what he's doing and they remember what, what he is actually, what John was saying, and they believe. Why? Because they start to, this is interesting for the context, even as you read, preparing for chapter 11, the author is cueing you up to say, remember the stuff that John the Baptist was talking about Jesus and who he is and what he would do? We revisit that later on, right here before chapter 11, it says, look, everything that you didn't believe about him is actually coming true. It wasn't right away, but it, it's, it's, and this sets up the cadence of chapter 11 to kind of get us ready as we begin to read and enter in to the theme that what God says is going to happen will, but it may not happen in your time. Okay, he's priming the pump to get us to begin to embrace that as a key area of a biblical worldview for a believer, all right? So here's what he gets in. He goes down and uh, he sets it up in this. Now, he, he, as we get into this, the first part, verses uh, 1 through 16, is kind of character development. Um, how many of y'all love character development in movies? in books, right? It's great to see the character development because that's where if you have a, a flat movie is when the character never changes. It's the same character, nothing ever happens to them, and the human soul is saying what? Like, I'm yearning for something to change. So it's a cathartic moment when I see someone changing on a screen. If they're not changing, I'm like, oh, why? Because the human soul knows we need to change. And knows we need to grow. And so it's interesting, as we set up these characters, we got to lay it down to begin to understand. So what is the character formation and how does Jesus enter in to the areas of disappointment? How does he enter in when death happens and we don't know what to do? How does he address these kind of things? And this is what he's going to do as we lay out. So look at the character development. We're going to summarize verses 1 through 16 real quick. The first two you have, let's look at 1 through 3, chapter 11, verses 1 through 3. Now a man was sick, Lazarus, from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Now here's the interesting thing. The author says this, Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair. And it was her brother Lazarus who was sick. In other words, Mary and Martha are pretty significant here. They, they had an encounter with Jesus that literally changed them. Mary was a broken, she was a hot mess, as, as my wife was talking about in praise and worship. We were a hot mess. 
Mary was a hot mess. Mary had an encounter with Jesus that literally changed her life. She was forgiven, and now it's interesting that he, John inserts this reality almost in a sense of saying, if anybody had a hookup to be able to ask Jesus to do something, it was Mary and Martha. If anybody had the access, the backstage pass, the VIP into the King of Kings to come and do something for them, it was Mary and Martha. All right? They had the spiritual grace and pedigree as, so to speak, that would give the grace to do that. And so here's the thing. They've seen Jesus do something. So when Lazarus, their brother, is sick, here's what they say. They send a message to the Lord and says, Lord, the one you love is sick. <laughs> they don't just say Lazarus is sick. Lord, the one you love is sick. Did you catch that? Don't miss that part. The one you love is sick. And, and it's interesting, as they say, the one that you love is sick, it kind of begins to surface how they're processing what's going on. Lord, I've, I've seen you do this. Our brother is sick. My understanding of the way that you show love to the ones you love is that you come deal with this sickness now. They didn't say now, but you can imagine the pressure. She's about, Lazarus is about to die if something doesn't happen. So they're like, Lord, come help Lazarus. Because the thing is, love for them was, please keep me from experiencing more pain right now. Please, Lord, I don't want this to amount in death. I, 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 I need you to do something so that I don't have to experience that much pain. Can we identify with that? And it's interesting. One of the indicators is that when, when God doesn't do something in our time, what do we often ask him? Do you love me? <laughs> do you do that? I do. Do, do you love me, Lord? So see, we're, we can already feel the sense of like, I've seen you. Love equals you doing it this way because, Lord, that's your purpose. That's your purpose. And it's interesting how we're so, we're so similar like this because when we get a glimpse of Jesus and what he can do, then, our, then in our mind it only makes sense that he would spare us from all harm. Why? Well, he spared me from this. Therefore, if this or anything that smells like this begins to uh, uh, feel like it's coming again, Lord, you're able to spare me from this. Spare me from it. Because that's, that's what a God of love does. Do you interpret love like that? And I think it's interesting that as they're going through this, this God, I need you to do this, look at verse 4. As they're summoning him and understanding love from this perspective and purpose has to happen like this, Jesus says this. When Jesus heard it, he said, this sickness will not end in death, but it is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha. Isn't this interesting? <laughs> Jesus says, look, in the back of the scene where they can't see or hear, we as a reader hear Jesus says this sickness is not going to amount in death. But could Mary and Martha hear that? 
when they're in the midst of that and, and, and they're right in the thick of requesting Jesus to do something, they don't hear or they can't see Jesus saying at that moment of their greatest fear, this will not end in death. They don't know that yet. Isn't that the hard thing when it feels like a huge loss? When something could happen that could bring so much greater pain in my life. And I'm just trying to walk with you, Jesus. When that's happening, Jesus is speaking about, I'm going to work this for something. But we can't always hear him saying what he's going to do. We can't see the big picture of God working out his plan. And because we have a hard time, then God, please do it this way. Because I can't hear you or see the picture of how you're going to work it out. And I'm having a hard time trusting you with it. Please don't let this happen because it just doesn't seem like I'll be able to make it through. And this is what he begins to to draw them in, and, and now he's saying, look, here's what he says in verse 5, now Jesus loved Martha. They're thinking Jesus' love is you got to do it right now. Jesus, you got to prevent this pain from happening. You, you need to come do this because that's what love is. And, and so then we see, here's the thing, Jesus loved Martha, her sister, and Lazarus. Watch verse 6. So what did he do? He went there and healed him from sickness right away? When he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. That just seems cruel, doesn't it? Like, Jesus, I need help. And Jesus says, the text says, Jesus loved them. And he waited two more days. Just feel that tension there. You see, our understanding of love is often God do it this way. And Jesus is like, remember, I love you. But it's not going to always work out the way that you want it to work out because you can't see the big picture. And that's why it's so hard. We can't see the big picture. But he does. So he's now walking them and us through the sense of, so when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days. He stayed two more days. And so you can imagine, get into Mary and Martha's mind and, and, and see this. Notice how the Lord loves them deeply. His deep love led to a delay on his part. Can you imagine what was going on in their mind? Is they're thinking like this. Is Jesus getting a request and cry for help? God, do you hear my prayer? When's the last time you, you were at the place where you were crying and yelling? Have you all yelled in your car or on the streets? Because you're like, God, like, do you hear me? Or are y'all like great, perfect Christians? that just know that God's always going to work it out. Have you all done that? This is the kind of stuff he's talking about. He's, he's crying out. He's inviting them. And so we see this sense of how um, they are wondering, like, what's going on? Do you hear me? Why aren't you here yet, Jesus? Why aren't you here yet? And I think it's interesting that we begin to see in this character layout of how the pain in the journey doesn't always make sense in a broken world, does it? Where we cannot see the big picture of what healing and building hope looks like for God's greater purpose. We just can't understand the depths of what God actually needs to do. And because we, if maybe we haven't experienced God taking us to those depths in certain areas of our life, and we don't know how he's going to do it. And honestly, we're a little scared. 
to let him go there. Right? We're a little scared to let him go there. And we're like, God, just don't go there because I, I don't know if you can handle that stuff. Right? And so it's interesting there. This is where just because he delays, just because he's not doing it in our time, doesn't mean that he's not entering into the pain to bring a greater hope for a greater dilemma because of a greater love. Did you catch that? Just because he delays... It doesn't mean that he's not entering into your pain. He's entering into your pain in a way that is actually going to address a deeper dilemma that we don't know about yet. That's the drama in this story. Is we're setting it up that says, oh, it's supposed to go this way. And then we begin to get a glimpse of saying, but he's doing something else. Watch what it says. And, and, and uh, now we have the disciples. Those are the ones who are hurting. Now you have the disciples as some characters. And, and uh, in verses 7 through 16, these are the ones who are called by God to enter in to the pain uh, of others. Look what happens in verse 7. Then after that, Jesus said to the disciples, he turns to the disciples, and he says, let's go to Judea again. All right? And then they say, Rabbi, the disciples told him, just now the Jews tried to stone you. Do you get the context? Like, are you tripping? They tried to kill you. Why are we going back? Do you catch the picture there? Hey, why do you want to go back? They're just trying to kill you, and you're trying to go back there. And it's interesting, he goes on, he says, All right, Jesus begins to go and, and explain the fact of why fear had gripped them. There, Jesus is saying, this thing is deeper than you imagine. But they're scared because they know that that might mean losing their life. So you have on one hand, Mary and Martha are like, no, 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 no. Like it needs to happen this way to hinder and prevent further loss. And then you have the disciples are saying, no, 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 no. <clears throat> like that means that we might die. Do you see, both of the characters are missing things about Jesus. Okay, so this is the context. Here they come in. And, and, and so what happens is Jesus begins to lay out and address why this fear has gripped them. And here's what he, he goes to explain further on in the text. He's explaining to these disciples how walking in the light may include suffering and difficulty. Where you will face persecution, slander, danger, and threat. But this doesn't mean we don't go there. Disciples, it doesn't mean you don't go there. They're just not getting something about Jesus yet. See, they still don't know the depth of the brokenness in the situation. Because what's their response? Well, he's, if he's sleeping, what's going to happen? He'll, he'll wake up. He'll get up himself. Jesus, it's really not that serious right now. I don't need to go risk my life because we'll let someone else take care of them. I'm going to live my comfortable area over here and build up my, like, this is your purpose for us, is to live this life where we're not risking our life, Jesus. Well, there's something deeper that he's leading them into. But here's the thing. They're at the same place like we do when we say, let someone else take care of that. I might get sick. I might get a disease. We got to go with wisdom. But I might be seen, someone else might see me and be like, wait, why are you hanging out with that person? 
We have all these fears of going into places to begin to learn from Jesus how we are called to minister to these deep areas of brokenness. But unless we let Jesus begin to lead us there, we don't see the big picture of how bad it is. And then we just say, well, let someone else deal with that. Let's, let, someone, let someone else work with that. You see, because Jesus needs the disciples to begin to learn to what it means to enter into the extremely messy and broken situations of our city. Because this is an essential part of discipleship with Jesus. It's part of counting the cost. It's like I was at this um, uh, pastoral uh, gathering for foster care and trying to hit at the crisis for fostering within our city last this past week on Wednesday. And the thing that stuck out to me is one of the dads who uh, he basically he was serving in a church. His wife like died after they had their firstborn. After a year old, the wife dies. And, and he's trying to just make it. He's trying to figure this out. Here's the thing that he shared is he had to give his child to other families. Here's the thing that stuck out for me is people were willing to take care of the family. But when it came to the dad who needed the ministry, the minute that they contacted the social worker, they said, now we can relegate him to the social worker. Here's the thing that he said. I needed relationships. It wasn't a one and done thing. I needed the church to come alongside, not just to set me up with social workers and then say, now let the professionals handle it. I needed the body of Christ, not just to help my child, but I was hurting. My child and me was broken, and all I was relegated to was as long as my child is taken care of, then you'll be okay. You see, the thing is, like, this is what uh, Jesus is calling us to begin to say, what does it look like to go into the messy situations? And you know what? Sometimes staying in the messy situations is longer than you want. Sometimes you have areas, whether it's like Mary and Martha, where you have sustained areas of grief. And you're like, God, I just want the difficulty to be done. Or other times it's God calls you to minister to someone and to be the hands and feet of Jesus. And you're like, can't this just be done so I can get back to my life as normal? And the thing is, Jesus saying, remember we talked about a couple weeks ago, when you're in Jesus, you're ruined for the ordinary. And the thing is because these things hit us in our lives, left and right. These things hit us in our community. Death happens. You could have it all together. Like Kobe Bryant, they had a great trajectory from what we saw. All of a sudden, now, he's, now, now Vanessa's raising the kids by themselves. These kids that had parents are now orphans. This happens all the time, whether dad is gunned down on the block or dad loses, like goes off over here and spends no time, or whether dad dies in a helicopter crash. Whatever it is, things happen. And Jesus says, when they happen, disciples, will you go there with me? Will you go there? And it's, it's interesting at the, at the back, it's, it's Jesus is calling us to begin to see the brokenness all around us. And then learn to appropriately respond. Learn to appropriately respond. It's kind of like this. And you have, you have at the end, here's what Thomas says. Thomas is funny with it. 
Um, Thomas says in verse 16, then Thomas says, he said to his fellow disciples, shoot, let's go so that we can die with him. Thomas tried to be a ride or die. He's trying to get all like, I, I think contextually because Thomas doubted the resurrection, I think Thomas is coming out of doubt with this one. I think he's coming and saying, all right, let's go and die with him. Like as if that's the result. Like, like there, there's something that they, they don't think that Jesus can actually do something in this situation. So here's, what, here's the thing. Application is, for this is we can identify with both the sisters as the needed recipients where we say, why doesn't Jesus hear our requests? What's he up to? But then we can also identify with the disciples as the ones following Jesus into scary areas to be his hands and feet. That's where you say it's too dangerous and scary to go there. They will be able to do it themselves and somebody else will handle it. Let's just get the government to handle the homeless crisis. In church, we'll just kind of do it with the middle class. We may not say that, but do we functionally like that? There's some stuff that God is like, i got to open your eyes. That's why we got to be rooted in the hope of the gospel, because vision-wise here, if we're not rooted in the hope of the gospel, we won't be free with the, the, the security of the kingdom of God and heaven as our inheritance in Christ. We won't be free to risk our lives, to go into those areas. We'll try to save our lives. And that's hard for me, but this is the gospel. So here's the thing. He goes down, and, and as, he, as we see the setting get set up with the characters, now Jesus begins to enter into the situation in a specific way. Watch this. In verse 17, you have Jesus entering in and, and finds Martha and finds Mary. Watch this. When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, less than two miles away. In other words, you're going to the danger land. Many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them from their brother. Watch Martha. As soon as Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Then Martha said, Lord, if you've been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Lord, if you've been here, my brother would still be alive today. It's interesting that, how does Jesus respond to Martha? I, I think it's fascinating where, where he says, your brother will rise again, Jesus told her. Watch what she says. I know he's going to rise again in the resurrection at the end days. See, they had, it wasn't common for them to see people rise from the dead in their day. That's only going to happen at the coming of the kingdom when they would rise. So she says, I know he's going to rise, but it hurts right now. Okay, you could have spared his life. Then Jesus said to her, I'm the resurrection and the life, Martha. It was Martha, you know he's going to rise, but Martha, I'm the resurrection. I, I can do something, Martha, that you think can only happen back in the, way off in the future. I am the resurrection. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Martha, do you get this? That I'm the resurrection. Yeah, you have an understanding of the resurrection. But let me tell you, the resurrection is right in front of your face. Martha, I am the resurrection. Even if you die, you will live because I'm the resurrection. Martha, I'm here before you. It's not just an event. The resurrection is in a person. He is the resurrection. So he's speaking to Martha and trying to, to speak this idea of who he is. And then here's the thing. He says, 
Um, do you believe this? Do you believe that if you die, if you believe in me, you will have life because I'm the resurrection, Martha? So he's, he's speaking to her and she says, yes, Lord, she told him, I believe you are the Messiah, the son of God who comes into the world. I believe you are, but there's still a sense where she doesn't quite get it yet. But here's the cool thing about this, about grief. Jesus enters in and speaks to Martha in a specific way that she needs to grieve. Do you notice that? See, Martha was most likely the one, she was the busy one, right? She got down in the home and preparing things, and she was mad that Mary was sitting at Jesus' feet. Martha was a busybody, and not always in a bad way, but sometimes in a bad way because she wasn't getting with the Lord. Okay, so Martha's busy. She's always doing something. I got to do this. I got to do this. And so Jesus enters in. Busy, people that are busy don't know how to grieve. <laughs> you notice that? Some of your, your coping mechanisms, I just don't know how to grieve. So I'm going to stay busy. 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 And Jesus, instead of Jesus entering in and just crying with her, Jesus says, no, okay, I'll speak to your busyness because that's how you know how to grieve right now. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to reason with you about showing you the reality of the resurrection because that's how you need me to enter into your grief. Okay? So he's, he's zooming in on Martha's grieving. And then watch what else happens. Look at Mary. So she goes and says, she goes back and calls her sister and saying, the teacher's calling for you. Watch this. As soon as Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. Okay, she, she can't even move. Mary's like, I'm done. I can't even move. She's chilling in the house. But then what happens is that uh, they, they go with her now, and they're, they're supposing that she was going to the tomb to cry there. So these mourners, these Jewish mourners who were grieving, would follow Mary to thinking she's going to go mourn at the grave. She's going to mourn and to grieve. Here's the thing about this. When Jesus sees this, as soon as Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and told him, same thing, Lord, if you've been there, my brother would not have died. Disappointment. Watch Jesus' response to her. When Jesus saw her crying, and the Jews had come with her crying, he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. Where have you put him, he asked. Lord, they told him, come and see. And Jesus wept. Jesus wept. This is interesting here. Martha is too busy to know how to grieve. Martha's missing something. Mary can't even talk, really. The right when Jesus shows up, the way Jesus enters into her grief is he just grieves and weeps. He just weeps. Do you see Jesus as the one who weeps when you weep? Do you see him as the one who says, you know what? You're going to grieve differently. If there's something about the loss of Kobe Bryant, I've never seen so many men crying. We have cried over this for a variety of reasons. Different people, different backgrounds, different context, different coping mechanisms, we all grieve in a different way. Amen? We all grieve in a different way. Here's the good news about grief when Jesus enters in to the loss in your life is he speaks to you based on how you know how to grieve. What this says, a lesson of grief, you can't control grief. 
You can't do grief perfectly. You just can't. And, and that's okay. When, when we learn to say, God, where are the areas that it's not supposed to go like this? Do you just run like Martha? Or are you just like inconsolable like Mary? How do you deal with grief in your life? This is an essential question, or else what can happen is that when you're going after Jesus' purpose and something like this hits you, if you're not in touch with the reality that Jesus enters into your grief, then it's hard to understand that God actually loves you in the midst of your grief. Sometimes some of y'all might feel shame when you grieve. I shouldn't grieve. I should just keep working harder. Keep moving, keep moving, keep moving. If that was the case, Jesus would have said, stop your crying, Mary. Pick yourself up by your bootstraps. Wipe off your, your mascara that's running and get your life together. How many of y'all have heard that message in your life? Stop crying. It's almost as if, like, if you're mourning, it means that's, that, that uh, you're doing something wrong. And so I think sometimes if you can't grieve, it's attached to, uh, directly to something about your understanding of an intimate God who enters into your situation to show you that your dilemma is actually worse than you think. It's actually deeper than you think. It is a symptom of something deeper. And this is what I love when Jesus comes in. When he steps in, it's this culmination of saying, disciples, if you saw that he's actually dead, you wouldn't be trying to relegate saying, no, nah, let's keep our life and he'll wake up. You would actually go with me ready to see what I'm going to do. So you have this culmination of he's, he's getting the disciples to say, I need to come with you right now. He's trying to open up their eyes to the bigger picture of when they're called to go to ministry, they're called there for a reason. And our tendency, like the disciples, will be to try to heal it superficially. Let me just hand out a, piece, a, a cheeseburger and then, okay, I'll see you later. Sometimes that's appropriate. But sometimes Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. Listen, I need you to enter into the grief of your city because it's a symptom that something far deeper is a reality. And I want you to see that it's far deeper. I also want Mary and Martha to see that if I just came and healed him, I wouldn't address the deeper thing that you really need. Lazarus doesn't just need to be healed from sickness. You see what I'm saying? He, he goes and it ends up at the end of the story. He tells Lazarus, get up. And he does this, not because he needs the, the father to approve of him, but he needs some people around to begin to show who Jesus is for his glory. Because in that world, the resurrection was a distant thing. Jesus is saying, the resurrection cannot happen unless I, the resurrection comes. I die for the depth of your brokenness. I die for how deep the pain is. So I don't heal it superficially. But when I resurrect Lazarus, it's a pointer to indicate I can resurrect. I could have healed. But if the cross doesn't take place you would be good for a few more years but separated from me for eternity you see what I'm saying so when we go and meet pressing needs when we pursue Christ's purpose there will be times 
when it doesn't happen the way we want. There will be times when it doesn't happen the way our city wants. And we're in this grief. And Jesus is calling us to say, one, I'm doing something deeper. Will you let me into that deeper area in your life that you've been trying to keep me out because you think that you just need a Band-Aid, but through my death and resurrection, i got to do some deeper surgical work in your soul. Because if I don't get the church mobilized, we won't know how to enter into the grief of our city. We won't know how to walk the young men and women because there's been surveys and even in church context, mega churches in our city. Some of my spiritual fathers are like, we take a survey and it's like 70 to 80 percent of the people in our church have gone through PTSD and they don't even know it. You can imagine when we're talking about working with Right Way Foundation and, and walking alongside and learning about with the emancipated foster care youth that are coming out of the system. Can you imagine the PTSD? We have it in our life. If you grew up in a home that was somewhat stable, you still have glimpses of it. And Jesus is saying, you can offer a meal, and yes, we need to. But unless we can grieve and learn to enter in that this is worse than I thought, there's so many layers of stuff. Jesus, the only way that you can really bring healing to our lives is through resurrection. You see that? And that's what God is calling to, in order to pursue Christ's purpose, we need to learn how to grieve the times when it doesn't happen right. And when we do that, we will see the significance of the resurrection. Why? Here's the thing, and we'll wrap up with this. If you don't see how bad it is and how hurtful it is and call it for what it is, you may not be able to see resurrection. You may not even see your need for resurrection. I just need a Band-Aid, Lord. He's saying, no, he's trying to tell the disciples and Mary and Martha, you guys need my, me as the resurrection. You need me to get in those areas of your life. And if we learn to do that, then it's in those moments when you're on your knees and you're begging, you're asking, Lord, I just don't get it. This isn't working out the way I thought it was. And we hear him saying, it won't result in something that's going to hurt you. It's going to result from my glory. We hear him in that, but as we're at the brokenness of who we are, it's in the depth of your brokenness when you begin to get glimpses of resurrection hope. And the more you experience that, the more you will see the goodness of God. It doesn't make sense, but the more you embrace grief when things like this happen, the more you will experience intimacy with the Father in Christ. And that's what God is calling us into. Part of being an authentic community is working through this together. It gets scary. You're going to want to run. You're going to want to Martha strength steroided up in your life. And God is saying, come broken. That area that you've never told anybody, bring it to me. Resurrection can heal that. That's what Jesus invites us into. What I want to invite us into as a church real quick is go, uh, Tristan, can you hit that slide with the four points of lamenting? I want us to learn how to lament, okay? I want us as a church to learn how to lament. I want you guys to take a picture of this. I want you to write this down. We've done like a year, two, like a year and a half, two years ago, we did a series on this. And I want us to get, we need to be in touch with this. If we don't do this, we won't be able to do culturally relevant ministry to engage the grief in our city with the gospel. And so here's the thing about writing a lament. Writing a lament is where, number one, it's when you're addressing God. 
you're addressing God in a lament. Let me give you a quick example of that. In Psalm 20, remember in Psalm 22, uh, he says, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? <laughs> he says this, that's what Jesus fulfills on the cross. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? There is a my God, my God, Lord. You are addressing God sometimes for an aspect of the character that you know he puts on display and is, even though you don't feel it right then. Faithful king. I just feel like you're not being faithful right now. I'm struggling with this right now. Why is it happening like this? And God doesn't have, he doesn't have to answer you like that. But he, in Psalm 142, he says the next one, after addressing God, he says, pour out your complaint to God. Pour forth your complaint. Look at Psalm 142. He says this. Uh, let me get to this real quick. Psalm 142, he says this. Watch this. David is running in a cave. He says, I cry aloud to the Lord, the covenant-keeping God. Okay, he's addressing him. I plead aloud to the Lord for mercy. I pour out my complaints before him. Now, we've often heard that uh, don't complain. Yeah, you, you do things without murmuring. We're not called to complain to each other. But who are we called to pour out our complaint to? The living God. Do you pour your complaint out to the living God? So this is an invitation to say, Lord, what's going on? I don't understand this. Pour out your complaint. Psalm 142 says that's what David was doing. Be honest with the Lord. Pour forth your complaints. All right? Pour it out before the Lord. Then the third one is entrust it to him. You see the movement of the Psalms. You have this addressing God. Psalm 42 and 43 says this really thick and well. It, it's these movements where you have you address God and then you're pouring out. Why are you so downcast, my soul? I, I don't understand why I'm so depressed within me. Lord, what's going on right now? And then you entrust it to him, but I will trust in you. But I will place my confidence in you. Even if you're not quite fully there, oftentimes at the end of a complaint, you're so tired. You're like, God, I don't know what to do, but I'm trusting you. Y'all been there before? You're, you're like, you're just yelling, like, God, help me. And you're like, I just don't know, but Lord, I'm going to trust you. I entrust this situation to you. I don't have an answer for it. I don't know what to do, but I'm going to entrust it to you. And then here's the thing. The fourth one is you present your request. And this is where you begin to say, Lord, I need you to move on our behalf in this area. I need you to do this, Lord. I need you to do this. And so here's the thing. I'm not just taking this out of thin air. This is, these are four foundational movements in the, lament, in the Psalms of Lament. And so as a church, when we are pursuing Christ's purpose, God is going to surface these things. These things are going to come up, and we're going to need to learn to lament. Write your own laments. Begin to do it together. And so what I want to encourage us to do is this week, as we're preparing to continue to work through being rooted in gospel purpose, I want you all to write your own lament. If you're hurting through, the, through what our city's grieving in right now, um, if you're hurting, whether it's with the Kobe situation, if you're still grieving the reality of Nipsey and you see the business and it's, uh, it's gated, gated off, if you've lost a loved one, if you've lost a job, if you've lost a relationship, if, you lost, if a situation is difficult and you're going through deep, hard things in your life, I want you to write a lament. All right, can we do that? Who here, I, I, well, you don't have to raise your hand. Have y'all written a lament before? Some of y'all might have said it, but not written it. I want you to be free to lament. 
because our city needs it. They need gospel-rooted lamenting, and we need it too for our spiritual formation.